Taiwan has held a presidential election and the Democratic Progressive Party has won a third term, with current Vice President Lai ching Da succeeding Tsai Ing-wen later this year. And while the victory is seen as one of continuing democratic values on the island, Lai will need to rely on his political opponents to govern. And that's without mentioning the China-sized problem across the Taiwan Strait. This is Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and joining me today is uh, my venerable leader, Professor Beck Strating, the director of La Trobe Asia. Welcome to the first podcast for 2024, Beck. Happy Year of the Dragon. Yes, Happy Year of the Dragon, Matt. Thanks for having me. Uh, always a pleasure to have you. But uh, let's jump right into the election result. What does the DPP victory mean for Taiwan? And is there a narrative in the narrowness of the result? Yeah, it's an interesting result because, as you mentioned in the introduction, the DPP uh, in the presidential election has won a third term, and this is unprecedented in the sense that uh, this is the first time a government has won three presidential terms in a row in Taiwan since the presidential elections began in 1996. And of course, President Tsai Ing-wen could not run due to term limits. Uh, So that meant that DPP's vice president, uh, William Lai, as he's commonly known in the Western world, he ran as the DPP's candidate. So this victory, I think, is particularly important when we're considering cross-strait relations because the DPP is seen as a pro-sovereignty party, one that's been quite assertive in resisting China's attempts to subordinate Taiwan, particularly compared with the main opposition party, the Kuomintang or the KMT. Mm. who tends to be viewed as closer or more prepared to engage in kind of diplomatic activities with China. So while the KMT favours the status quo, it has traditionally championed unicorns with China, whereas the DBP really rejects that idea of the one China principle, the idea that there is only one China and that one China is mainland China and instead advocates for this, you know, Taiwanese national identity, which is separate from mainland China. So the kind of the key narrative around the victory is that this was a rejection of mainland China's attempt to pressure Taiwanese voters into electing a president that would be more likely to appease Beijing. Mm. So the DPP's policy platform was really built around being able to deter China, potentially defend against a Chinese invasion, shoring up economic uh, security, particularly the issue that many other economies face, which is trying to diversify trade away from China, mobilising those sorts of international relationships and partners that China does not have so many of and forming these international coalitions and really being what the DBP considers clear-eyed on China in cross-strait relations. So as I mentioned before, not subordinating Taiwan to the demands of China. So the key narrative, I think, is this is a reflection a rejection of attempts to pressure 
But also the second related narrative is that mainland China isn't necessarily all that happy with the result because of that. And Lai himself is viewed as being quite sceptical about China, quite pro-West. And during the administration of President Tsai, there's been this sort of suspension of high-level talks between Taiwan and mainland China. And so there's this narrative that this is a result that China was not necessarily hoping for. Mm. We'll dig deeper into that a bit further on in the podcast, but this is in many ways seen as a vote of confidence of the previous track record of the DPP, but also the the narrowness of the result. They won 40.05% of a vote in a three-person race. And they don't have a mandate needed for a majority. So how tricky is it going to be for them to govern? Yeah, it's a really interesting result. And it reflects, you know, the nature of the first past the post-electoral system that Taiwan uses in order to determine who becomes president. So over 50% is not necessarily needed in order to elect a president. The winner just needs a simple majority in order to win. But there is a sense in which the result does reflect a willingness for the DPP to continue on, particularly in that role of the president. This was not as comprehensive a victory as Tsai Ing-wen's victory in 2016 Mm. or 2020, which were clearly over 50%. So there is a drop in the level of support that does need to be explained. And partly we can see that this might be a consequence of the the relatively new Taiwan People's Party or the TPP entering the presidential race and the popularity of the TPP leader, Ko Wenjing, who won over 26% of the vote. So that's quite interesting because the main opposition party, KMT's vote, remained in the 30s. So they received a vote higher than 2016, but lower than they received in 2020. Right. And so... This is an interesting dynamic and the third term may have had a role to play in that it's unprecedented, so perhaps people felt like it was time to change. But there's also a sense in which it's not just about cross-strait relations. You know, there are domestic concerns over things like housing and stagnated wages. And this is what the TPP was really focused on and trying to capitalise on young voters' dissatisfaction with the DPP and the KMT by focusing more on some of these domestic issues concerning younger voters. Mm -hmm. And the other interesting point to make here is that a lot of the attention is on the presidential side of the elections, but there's also parliamentary elections that are held on the same day. And the DPP actually lost its majority in Legislative One, which is the parliament. And this was not overly surprising given the polls. But this is where coalition forming is going to be very important because the DPP won 51 seats, KMT won 52, while the TPP received eight seats. So this is going to make the TPP important in terms of forming a coalition. And it might also be difficult for Lai to carry forward his policy platform. But all of this kind of means that it's a bit of an ambiguous result when it comes to whether or not 
we can say, well, this means that the Taiwanese people were happy with the DPP's progress because, you know, yes, Lai is now the president-elect and will be inaugurated on 20th of May this year. But at the same time, the parliamentary results reflect a different picture again. Mm-hmm. And this is often what you get when you have a, a government that's been in for a few terms. They lose popularity each yeah. time. And an election is sometimes seen as a way to lodge a, okay, you can have another turn, but your report card isn't great. It yes, isn't up to scratch. a warning sign. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a really interesting point to make. And I visited Taiwan at the end of last year and spoke to representatives of the three main parties. And my observation was that both the DPP and the KMT were really focused on the China challenge and cross-strait relations. Now, that might have been just because they were talking to people from Australia who, mm. who, who were coming to Taiwan to understand what was going on. But even when asking some of these representatives and other analysts in the kind of defence and security sector about the sorts of domestic issues that are important. We didn't always get a very clear response on that. So it feels like the cross-strait relations is kind of like the big issue. But like many economies, including Australia, I mean, Taiwan faces this challenge of trying to diversify trade away from China in order to reduce economic dependence. Mainland China remains Taiwan's biggest trading partner with over 25% share of total trade. And certainly the DPP is diversifying and decoupling as part of its policy platform in the context of those broader cross-strait relations. But, you know, there are other issues as well. Energy, I mean, Taiwan faces an issue that it imports nearly all of its fuel, something like 98%, Mm. which makes it vulnerable to strategic risks, you know, if those supplies can be cut off, but also to economic risks as markets fluctuate, as well as concerns about reliance on fossil fuels. And domestically, as I mentioned before, there are these issues with cost of living, with wages really stagnating, and with the cost of housing. And these are concerns that in particular, younger people have been focused on. But I think it's fair to say that the cross-strait challenge is a major concern, possibly because there's a real focus on this date of 2027. And Foreign Minister Joseph Wu, who I interviewed last year for a La Trobe University event, has made comments that he was preparing for the possibility of conflict potentially Mm. in 2027. And US intelligence has said that it believes that Xi Jinping, China's president, has ordered the country's military to be ready by 2027 to annex Taiwan. Taiwan is also waiting. backlog on defence capabilities. So they're waiting for the delivery of some very important military capabilities. So F-16 jets and tanks to arrive because these are the sorts of things that they're hoping will allow Taiwan to deter an invasion while also trying to kind of mitigate the pressure that China is putting on Taiwan through incursions at sea and, and in the air from jets and from naval vessels. So 
the KMT was arguing that what was required was more diplomacy in order to buy time, but that was clearly not a convincing enough argument to get the KMT candidate across the line in the presidential campaign. Okay. So China has called the election a vote between war and peace, and they labelled Lai as a dangerous separatist. Uh, It's fair to say that this election outcome wasn't the one they desired. What has their reaction been to the results? Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting term, the dangerous separatist. And as I mentioned, William Lai is not China's preferred candidate in this election. And uh, it was interesting when I was in Taiwan, one of the people that I spoke to described the election as really being about four parties, the DPP, (laughs) the TPP, the KMT and China. And so... This is a disappointing result. The DPP is really the most pro-sovereign and, to put it sort of very crudely, the most kind of anti-mainland China party of the main parties contesting the election. So Lai's efforts to talk with Beijing, because, you know, even after the result, Lai's saying that cooperation and diplomacy is important, but these sort of efforts to engage with Beijing have been rebuffed. We also see China criticising countries for congratulating the DPP on the result, including Australia. Mm. And we see China trying to persuade the 13 countries that recognise Taiwan to switch their allegiance, which had some success with Nauru. Happened with Nauru, yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, severing diplomatic ties with Taiwan and, and establishing relations with mainland China. So now it's down to 12 which is precarious, particularly if you've got a political entity that is being led by a party that is asserting independence and not just de facto independence, but also trying to assert a much more legal independence recognised internationally. That's a bit of a problem for Taiwan. And then we also saw the not unexpected incursions, patrols around Taiwan, sending planes and naval vessels across the median line in the Taiwan Strait and into Taiwan's air defence identification zone. But this was nothing too out of the ordinary, I I wouldn't think. There wasn't like a massive... It has been normalised to that kind of Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it was kind of on a par with what happened when Nancy Pelosi visited. Mm. Nothing that was too out of the ordinary. And so I guess you could say the response could have been worse. You know, there might be a concern that if Beijing really pressed at this point, that might actually gather more sympathy for the DPP, that if they press too hard, it might have an effect of further consolidating concerns within Taiwan about China's behaviour. Or the other possibly more pessimistic alternative might be that they're playing a waiting game for the inauguration Mm. uh, on the 20th of May. So once the inauguration happens in May, do you think that China will increase the pressure? I think that increased pressure would probably happen regardless of the inauguration because that's been the trajectory of China's approach to Taiwan. It's essentially, you know, a war of attrition. China's aim seems to be to put so much pressure on Taiwan and Taiwanese society that people will ultimately choose to surrender. And now this seems 
from what I can see, to be rather doubtful given the sort of the resilience of the Taiwanese people and the fact that, you know, we have a DPP third presidential term. But China, I think, would only really want to invade as a last resort because war is dangerous and costly to China as well. Mm. And so there is this complex situation, I think, where China does need to be aware and conscious of domestic opinion in Taiwan, but has been amplifying this pressure, primarily through the use of what tends to be called grey zone activities. These are the sorts of activities that fall below the threshold and conflict and are significant because the whole point of grey zone tactics is that they are not significant enough to really warrant retaliation retaliation, particularly from a partner of Taiwan like the United States. So it's this kind of constant pressure, trying to get across this idea that reunification is inevitable, that mainland China is not going to stop with this kind of harassment campaign. Mm. And this seems to be getting worse over time, not lessening over time. So I think we will see a pressure campaign increase after the 20th of May, but that is in line with what appears to be China's aim or strategy in relation to Taiwan. Yeah. Speaking of strategy, part of the DPP's uh, methods has been outreach to democratically minded countries. Uh, Do you believe that this style will continue? How do you think that they're going about shoring up? Absolutely. I think this will continue. I anticipate the DPP and President Lai will be continue to try and internationalise the issue of Taiwan as much as possible, particularly focusing on US allies, partners. You know, democracy is a really big part of Taiwan's public diplomacy. If you think about You know, some of the comparisons that are often made in Australia, you know, Taiwan is a democracy of 23 million people. Australia is a democracy of 26 million people. Therefore, a risk to a democracy like Taiwan is also a risk to a democracy like Australia. These sorts of comparisons are a way of trying to generate support for the Taiwanese people for their plight and for defending democracy much more broadly, a sense of kind of global democracy. So that kind of outreach, I suspect, will continue on the DPP. As I mentioned, you know, it does face difficulties in terms of international recognition and also some difficulties in that because it is not recognised as a complete sovereign state, it can find itself on the outer of international institutions and Mm. multilateral institutions. But nevertheless, you know, we see Taiwan trying to have an influence, get involved in these sorts of fora and these sorts of organisations in order to promote Taiwan's interests internationally in the sense that it's going to want a coalition of states to help defend it in the event that China might invade Taiwan. And I think that is one of the big concerns, if we think about Asia security, is the extent to which countries other than the United States will choose 
to help militarily defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. I think that remains one of the most significant regional and global security questions, and certainly one that gets its fair share of airtime here in Australia. Mm, Yeah, definitely. So I can't imagine what this election would have been like in Taiwan, because really you've got China, a country that is dead set on your status changing what, 180 kilometres away? Is that about what the Taiwan Strait is? It's a few hours drive. We actually went to an island called Kinmen, where the distance is so small, you can see mainland China from across the water. And that is quite confronting because on the coastline, there are these sticks that sort of jut out from the beaches as a deterrent, you know, try and complicate landing on the shores. Yeah, in some parts, it's even closer than that. What was the general vibe? What was the perception of what was at stake from this election? It's so interesting because there seems to be a paradoxical mindset, maybe not paradoxical, but perhaps multidimensional, where on the one hand, Taiwanese people and society continues on as normal. Life goes on. Life goes on. I think that's important to convey that image because that's an important one for, say, businesses. If you want to attract international investment, Mm. presenting that idea that, you know, actually things aren't chaotic and people aren't letting their lives be overrun by existential dread or, you know, that society just functions as a normal society does and should. That came across quite strongly. But at the same time, We also met with some organisations like the Kuma organisation, which is about incorporating defence into the lives of people and training people in emergency activities or being able to provide medical assistance, basically what to do in the event of an invasion. And their aim is to have millions of Taiwanese trained in the event of mass whole society emergency. Yeah. These sorts of things, they sort of coexist, if you like, I think. Mm, mm. It occurs to me that the current government, the new government, is the one that's going to be in power in 2027. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the defence and security analysts that we spoke to in Taiwan were not convinced that China is really ready or willing to invade anytime soon. Mm. So there's a kind of downplaying of this threat narrative that this is something that is going to happen within the short term. The mid to longer term is really the concern here. So even if China might be ready to invade by 2027, that's a big might, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what will happen. Mm. Um, So, you know, the capabilities are not always a sign of intent. Nevertheless, we heard a lot about the 2027 date. It's not just about what China can do, it's about what Taiwan can do. And it's about being concerned that Taiwan doesn't at the moment have the sorts of defence capabilities that it needs in order to deter, and if it comes down to it, to defend. Mm, Yeah, it's going to take a lot more than sticks on a beach. Yes, exactly. Beck Striding, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much, Matt. 
You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any readily available podcasting platform. Reviews are appreciated. You can find Latrobe Asia on LinkedIn or what is left on Twitter. We are at Latrobe Asia and Beck Strating is at Beck Strating. This podcast is being produced at the Bundura campus of Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia, on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Matt Smith and thanks for listening.